Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Anne Dixon, exploring revolutionary women in history, recorded live as part of Berwyn's Salon North, uncontrollable or revolutionary. Good evening. It is, as, as has been said, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm slightly nervous, but also excited because um, I'm going to share with you not something I've done before. They're my thoughts rather than any particular finished work. Um, And this is because when this was republished in March, uh, there was a little flurry of publicity. um, And I was asked to do interviews and some magazine articles. And one of those invitations was to speak on Women's Hour. And um, I was uh, interviewed by Emma Barnett, who you may know. It was a very short slot. I've been on Women's Hour before, and that normally that's okay. But it was a very short slot, and the, but the day was changed at the last minute. They rang at half past eight to say it was going to be Monday rather than Wednesday. And of course, because of the situation in Ukraine. And it was on Zoom, inevitably. So I spent an hour or so waiting for my invitation to join the conversation. Now, the interviewer is known for her combative style, and she soon not quite wiped the floor with me, but dismissed what I'd said, um, because I was talking about the importance of equality to assertiveness, and she insisted that competition and winning was the only way to go. And of course, then it was over. And after that, from family, from friends, from colleagues, I had these emails and WhatsApp things coming in saying, she was terrible, she was this, she was that. Um, All of them protesting about her aggression and various people complained to actual women's art itself. But the thing was that I personally felt I was mortified, basically, um, because I hadn't handled it better. And my little self-critic sat on my shoulder for the next few days. I don't know if any of you have little self-critics that sit on your shoulder, but that sat there relentlessly telling me what I should have said, could have said, how how could I have allowed my proposition to be hijacked and missed an opportunity to give a positive message. It was hell, it went on and on and on. So, you know, they don't stop trying to make you feel small and humiliated. And anyway, eventually I remembered that when shit happens, as it often does, it's a good idea to use it for compost. (laughs) So, my reflections this evening are based on that. This is compost for me. Um, Because the whole experience of that, unpleasant that it was, has really led me to think a lot about our voices, about women's voices. Because I've been wondering why I didn't respond more confidently, you know? And I know the material inside out after all these years. Um, I've spoken in many contexts to many people. So why, what stopped me on this occasion? What got in the way of maintaining 
a clear, strong message, despite the interview's own agenda. It didn't take me long to realize that it was because at that moment, or those, the moment of that, I was very vulnerable. Why was I vulnerable? Because I can't stand doing things on Zoom. It's a lot to do with that, and I was waiting, and like everybody else, I've had to adapt to the medium through lockdown. But I don't feel anywhere in my comfort zone with it. I don't like not seeing that I would have been better on the phone and face-to-face, -face. and that made me think about my own... Po I'm sure a lot of you are very happy with Zoom and don't have this problem, but it, it's a particular thing, and it's a personal thing, and it made me think about the experience of vulnerability when it happens to us in our own way, in our own time, we all have our Achilles heel. And it's then that we lose our voices. And it happens, you know, just on particular occasions with particular people in particular contexts. And I've witnessed this many, many, many times working with women over the years. And some of the things that I'm aware often happen, it's like sometimes we're concerned, the vulnerabilities, because we're concerned about provoking a hostile response from the person we're speaking to, or the, there's anxiety about standing in the minority, being different, not knowing how to disagree with the accepted line or the dominant speaker without looking stupid. You want to object to something that's happening or the way people are behaving, but you feel awkward in a social or professional situation. Sometimes it's the anticipation of disapproval that unsettles us or we don't want to upset or alienate the other person, or we don't want to deal with the imaginary or real repercussions. Sometimes it's just weariness with repeated past experience of being ignored, shouted down, talked over, having your point misrepresented or taken out of context and distorted into something you didn't really mean. Sometimes we're backed into a wall pressurized to provide evidence about what we feel and what we know, which comes often from wisdom and perception rather than factual analysis. And although we know sometimes something's true, we find ourselves unable to deliver the scientific proof to satisfy the other person. So the key for me and what assertiveness has always been about is not only to find your voice, but to learn how to use it. First, you have to learn, and these are all things that you can learn. You have to be clear and specific, which is much harder than it sounds, because we resist it. We're often unpracticed, and the resistance comes often from a long time spent not speaking up and expressing our needs. There's a little bit of us women often don't want to have to spell it out, because they're quite good, often we are quite good at knowing what other people are thinking or anticipating needs and keeping an ear out for what somebody wants or what the mood changes or before it's articulated. So when you're watchful and you spend a lifetime being watchful and alert and picking up subtle signals, you know, knowing the mood, how to deflect it, this builds up a, a wall of resistance because we are reluctant to take responsibility for spelling something out when secretly we'd quite like other people to know what we wanted without having to put it into words. But the problem with that is that our needs continue to go unexpressed. So being specific is a skill that can be acquired. The next skill is to express feelings rather than be afraid of them, rather than having them run us. 
We often feel at the mercy of our feelings instead of using them as a guide and source of who we are and how we relate to others. We ignore them, suppress them, deny them, eat or drink to anesthetize them. We fear the embarrassment of becoming emotional because when we try and speak, our breathing changes, our throats tighten, and we do not want to cry and show even more vulnerability. So learning to communicate assertively means learning how to include the vocabulary of feelings in our conversation. Putting feelings into words means being able to identify them, name them, acknowledge them and express them, which has huge benefits in terms of communication. When you speak with the head and the heart together, communication is strengthened immeasurably. It's a really powerful way of communicating. For many people I've worked with, this way of communicating represents a different dynamic. Instead of being completely focused on the other person, what she is gonna say, he's gonna say, how are they feeling, are they gonna listen, what mood are they in, you bring the focus back to yourself. What am I feeling? What's happening? And what do I want to be different? The three key questions. And in that way, you stand in your own psychological space, you find your answers to the questions, and then you can use your voice as an equal, not because you want to win or prove yourself right, but because you have an equal right to communicate. And every right, I think, has a responsibility that goes with it, and the responsibility is to speak up, because nobody else is gonna do it for us. Nobody else is gonna invite us, give us the floor, stop talking. We have to find a way in to speak if we want to be heard. Now, when I think of my own experience and the women I've worked with over 40 years, in the recent past, long past, repeating the patterns of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers great and hearing some of that today from Nan, over and over again, our voices are not clearly heard. Why not? Because we don't speak up, we keep quiet within a context of personal relationships. We often humor the other person, we indulge them, we mutter perhaps in private and raise our eyebrows or shrug our shoulders in real or mock resignation. Every now and then when our unexpressed feelings reach a certain level, our voices erupt and become what is labeled hysterical or shrill or strident, which lasts a while until the energy diminishes and then we often return to being passive onlookers. That's at a personal level. But what I've been thinking about recently is how much there is a wider context to consider. We may feel uncomfortable or angry at what we witness around us. We may know of a more constructive or practical alternative. We may sense danger, disaster. We may deeply want a change in the system, but we don't speak out. And for me, the problem is that we can easily then become passive bystanders. 
which risks our participation in the world like that of an audience watching a drama unfolding on a stage. And I know some women are in the wings, perhaps, and maybe even the odd one has a starring role. But the script isn't ours, it's already written. There's a single example of what I mean by having to sign up to a system that's already established. I'm going to look at experience of women in the workplace. Some years ago, I wrote a book called Women at Work because I wanted to address specific problems facing women in communicating at work. And much of the training I was doing at the time would focus on the need not always to take the treatment by male colleagues as a personal criticism or affront. And it wasn't easy because we are personally on the receiving end of put-downs, of being unequally recognized for our value or being ignored or allocated tasks way below our level of ability, all sorts of things. But it's not often personal. It's, it's important to see, and that was what I was doing when I was training, to see the bigger picture, that we were representatives rather than just it wasn't a personal thing. Because despite so-called equality at work, women are historically relatively new to paid employment. I noticed in the paper today that the financial, one of the financial bodies has said that now there has to be a woman on every board because they are actively trying to get women into higher positions in organizations. What often gets lost in that process of simply appointing is the inner experience of the woman and how different it is when she gets there. And there's not often a lot of support. Especially in the upper echelons, a male executive is unlikely to question his right to be there or feel he has to prove anything. But a woman executive and I've seen this so many times, although they often have a tremendous um, persona of, very, of great confidence and ability, because they have to. But they'll usually be aware of being judged and compared in a completely different way. And she'll have to decide whether or not to play the same games, follow the same rules, opt for the same methods, exhibiting the same kind of behavior as her male counterparts. Now, some women do this quite happily. Others do so because they feel they have to succeed, and that's the only way to get on. Others continue to feel uncomfortable with the ethos. But it means that we don't contribute fully. And this is what particularly concerns me looking at the world today. A friend recently told me of her experience as an ANC activist in South Africa, and after Nelson Mandela was released, the ANC, as a political party, as you know, took control and became the government. And my friend, along with seven other women, were really elated and excited at the prospect of doing some really good work in the government. But quite soon on, she, the disappointment set in because the male colleagues with whom they had worked for years and years they, they, in the higher positions, they lapped up the trappings of power. They were interested in the big desks and the limousines. But more importantly, for 
the women who were there, who were committed to serve ordinary people and to make radical changes in the process of government, found themselves isolated. Little by little, they found themselves excluded from certain discussions and decisions. A few of them left early, disillusioned. Others stayed on to battle, but eventually also gave up. And you just think, I think to myself, I wonder about that kind of loss of potential and it continues to be sustained in professional contexts of all kinds, in all countries. We're all conscious of the system, systems, the culture and shape and remit of every kind of institution, political, medical, educational, financial, commercial, scientific, artistic, criminal and justice, industrial, environmental, represent systems that we take for granted, the way things have always been done, established for years, even centuries, but with little or no input from women. When I first wrote my book in 1982, I was teaching and training other women to teach assertiveness classes. And my focus was then on helping women communicate more effectively in their lives as they wanted to do. And the learning had repercussions. I was reminded when, this, when, when the new edition came out, I was really delighted that a lot of comments came directly and indirectly to me from women, many of whom I'd never met, who expressed the importance of reading that book, this book, at some point in their lives enabling them to leave an unhappy marriage or confront bullying or apply for a new job, to say no, to say yes, to find their voices within their own individual lives. And for many, it really was truly transformative. And I started in the UK, but as my book was translated, I had the good fortune to be invited to work in other countries and other cultures. And it was really that experience that resulted in my becoming a feminist. I, I didn't have a feminist agenda to start with because I was surprised, I really was surprised to see how women in Japan or Hungary or Ireland, despite huge cultural differences, described the same problem, the same difficulties in expressing needs and setting boundaries, saying no, finding it difficult to express anger or to deal with conflict, often with a real crushing sense of low self-esteem. And despite all that's changed in 40 years, and it's true that young women today have a lot in this part of the world, um, have more choices and more options than certainly their grandmothers did, and even than their mothers did. But a lot of things haven't changed. And my focus now in, on these intervening years is more to do, it's, it's shifted from personal transformation to collective transformation, because I don't know whether it's because I'm now much older, I'm now 75, as opposed to 40 years ago when I started, and I look at the consequences of our collective silence. 
I know I won't ever personally experience a world that is co-constructed, co-creatively produced, where women's voices are heeded, and where other qualities other than competition and aggression are chosen. I sometimes think what shape would our world be if women had played an equal hand in its organization and construction? I'd, I'll never know, but it makes me think. I think it's one thing to claim equality, but quite another to live it. And we've all seen in the research during lockdown, there was quite a lot of international research looking at patterns of behavior and the ways, I'm sure you read this, the ways things changed, or rather, it's like scratching the surface and the old things come back, that women in lockdown were doing the lion's share of the chores and homeschooling and the domestic duties, as well as often working, and also the huge rise in domestic violence all across the world. And that says to me that some things haven't changed. Feminism, Nan said about woman's history, that it's, she didn't agree with it because it's not women's history, it's history is sort of isolating that as an artificial thing. And I feel that very much about feminism. I don't think feminism is a woman's thing. I think it's about being human. And I wish men could understand that. It's all too often seen to be a woman's thing, but it's about being human. It's about finding another way other than the way things are today. It's finding more honesty, more equality, more clarity, and more compassion. So I haven't had the, oh, I have had the five minutes. That's good, I think, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, I thought that was, I was still going on. Um, well, there's no point of, I mean, I'd quite like to know if there's a question. Am I allowed to ask that? If there's any questions for my last five minutes? There's no point in my rabbiting on. It's much more interesting listening to some challenges or questions from you. Yes, there's somebody there with a white shirt. Thank you. Um, I work in a very male-dominated industry, so I just wanted to say that what you said resonated a great deal with me, and it is very difficult when you are the only woman in the room in meeting after meeting to feel that you still have as much value as your male colleagues. So um, just wanted to say thank you. It's, it's good to feel heard from that sense, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody back there. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm going to step into some dangerous territory here, and that's about the use of pronouns. And um, I, I'm, ask, I'm asking this because I, this is something I'm struggling with personally because I just haven't got to the point of understanding this yet. So when people start to pronounce, or men start to pronounce themselves as, wants to be known as a she, but I just wondered what your view is on that because I can't work it out myself so far and I'm just thinking this in terms of being assertive because I shy away from talking about this and I think many people do because it's a very sensitive issue because it's all wrapped up with equality and all of the stuff that's, that's arisen over the last couple of years. So I just wondered what your thoughts were if you, if you feel free enough to talk about it. 
You're talking about transitioning. Transitioning and mm. use of pronouns. So if, if, if a man wants to call himself a she instead of a he and all of these things, so. Well, this is emptying a minefield. You have a question too, don't you? So, and we've only got a couple of minutes. Um, it's, a, it's a minefield. I, so my personal thoughts are that um, I don't have any difficulty with somebody, you know, going from Mark to Mary. Um, but then to do that is much more than a name change. And I, I find, what I find really difficult is the aggression and the misogyny that appears a lot in some of the, the politicizing of it. Because I think we've had enough to deal with, enough misogyny to deal with without that. So I think, I think changing your name is one thing, but I think the experience, the experience of being a woman is not in name only which is, you know, what this evening is about, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so much deeper. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of politicization about it, which I, uh, I feel uncomfortable about. And I think there's a kind of turning now, that, that was one of the things that this article said about the financial authority, that they were not, they, they have to make a certain allocation for women now to be on the board, but they were not going to tell people that they had to take somebody who was a trans woman. They're now leaving it up to other people to decide. So there's, it's a very complex issue, and I don't think we can be bullied. I don't want to be bullied. I'm fed up with being bullied. I don't want to be bullied even more to keeping quiet. You know, it's, this is about finding your voice about the things that are really important going on today in this world with women who've been women all their lives. So I don't want to be sidetracked. Thank you. Is it a question? Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Um, so what, what I've, I've heard is that um, there is huge amounts of misogyny in the world. And as a man, I, well, as half of the population, I, I, sorry, as half of the population, I need to know how to be better. So can you give us some advice as how to be better? It, it's, a, it's a good question. That's a really, it's a good question. I wrote, I wrote a book for men called Teaching Men to be Feminist. And very few men read it, most women read it. <laughs> because I think there's, it's really important Partly that is the thing about saying it's not just for women, you know, because men would often come up and say, why do you still do this stuff? You know, surely it's all equal now. And I said, no, it isn't. And I, and I wanted to use the book, first of all, to tie up, to make a continuum of what sexism, to really explain what sexism is, because people often don't understand it, you know? And, and so instead of just taking the, the monsters which is what the media do, like Weinstein or the, the, or the policeman who murdered Sarah, you know? Making people into monsters misses the point because it doesn't show everything else that's involved, you know, the land, all the little things. It's kind of continuum. And the second thing is that women do collude with sexism, and we do, you know? I mean, there are many women who would refuse to have women priests as they were men. So in our own way, we do collude with some of it. 
But that's what I did. I wrote to address it because I think it's a really, I think the important thing is to talk, and that's one of my regrets about the Me Too movement. Because I think if you only get to aggression and to blame, you cannot change anybody by blaming them. Nobody will change when they feel guilty. And most men, in my experience, don't really understand what's going on. They don't, you know, they just do not understand. They don't want to go do it wrong. They don't, but they don't understand. They don't hate women. They love, you know, many women. So I think it's to do with setting up a situation where you can really talk and really listen. I know that sounds simple, but I actually think that's important. It's great. And, you know, talk about anticipating things. I could really sense in the room that that was a question that wanted to be asked. Um, and just before you go, a couple of things. Um, we've done lots of salons, had many, many speakers, but I've never heard anyone admit vulnerability and getting things wrong so publicly ever in a talk. It's very powerful. It's very generous. Was it deliberate? It was true. <laughs> it's extraordinarily, it's extraordinarily powerful. And just for take home for everyone in the room, and thank you so much. You did mention there's three things that we could do, or three things that you could do. With the three questions. Three I said questions. To ask yourself. Yes. yes, I just wondered if you could just repeat them so that we have the them. first in any situation. And this takes skill. It doesn't. Right. But the, but the the key is if you're in a situation to to identify what's happening. What is the behaviour? Not who the person is, but what's what's going on. Then how you feel about it, and then what you want what you'd like to be different. It's the three things. If you, if you don't put the third thing in, you're going to just be unconstructively critical. If you can put the third thing in, then you're taking responsibility. The other person may disagree, but at least you've followed through. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. That's something for us all to take home tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Anne Dixon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.